Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Well, like I said, we're in Genesis still. We're going to be in Genesis for a while. Um, It's going to take us right into the fall. And we're going to be looking uh, in this series at the first 11 chapters that really set us up for the rest of Scripture, set us up for all of human history, really. Uh, And so I explained a little bit last week why we start in Genesis and why we are why we're here. Uh, And so this week we're going to continue on with the days of creation. Now, last week I made it clear, and I want to make it clear today as well, um, that the one thing that we cannot tolerate when we're talking about these first chapters of Genesis is the notion that if you deny these are literal 24-hour days, then you've denied the authority of Scripture and you're walking away from Jesus. That's just not acceptable. Right? However you read these verses, whether you read them as literal 24-hour days of creation, or you read them as spans of time, or you read them totally poetically, and, and the point of them is that they're there to teach us about God and God's character and our relationship to God. They're not scientific texts, okay? So whatever your interpretation is of how creation got going, of how exactly God created we're going to be focusing in on the purpose of these verses as teaching us about who our God is and how to relate to God. And so we jump in here, (coughs) and I have a question for you. Now, we're from a variety of backgrounds, of church backgrounds, I know. Who in here has gone through catechesis? If you, if you, right, we've got some people who have gone through, all right, a few people who have gone through catechesis. If you don't know what catechesis is, then you, you answered correctly um, by not raising your hand. So thanks for not lying. Um, within the church, within the, in the history of the church, traditionally within the church, we've gone through a series called, uh, a process called catechesis. We've sent our children through the process of catechesis or catechism that you might have called it, um, where you go and you learn doctrine, you learn theology, and this is in preparation for your confirmation. So within church traditions where we baptize babies, there's not that moment later in life where they like say a sinner's prayer and then they're baptized, and that's kind of the moment they become a Christian. For those who are baptized as infants within church traditions, there comes a point where you own your faith and you say, yes, this is mine. And we've called that process confirmation. And so you might go through the process of catechism or catechesis, which is a training in doctrine. It's a training in the beliefs of the church. And ideally, at the end of that process, then you as a young person would say, yes, I believe this. This is what I want to order my life by. And you go through what's called confirmation, where you are confirmed in your faith. That's a very traditional process within the church. Now, when that's done well... What it does is set you up for a lifetime of learning and discipleship. When it's done poorly, you get to confirmation and you think, well, that's kind of it. I'm there. I'm set. I'm done. I don't really need to do anything more. I'll go to church on Christmas and Easter. And unfortunately, within the church, all too often, we end up in that second category (laughs) where we go through to confirmation and we bring our young people to confirmation and then we get there and they're kind of like, okay, you're fully fledged member now. It's all done. Your learning is finished. There's nothing more for you. And we kind of drop the ball with them. But when we do it well, it's supposed to set us up for a lifetime of walking with Jesus. 
ideally, what confirmation is supposed to do is to bring you to a point where you say, yes, I want to believe this, and I want to continue growing in this faith for the rest of my life. I want to begin a walk with Jesus on my own now. Up until now, I've been under the banner and canopy of the church and my parents and my home, and now I'm owning this, and I'm going to walk with Jesus forever. And that's the ideal thing. In other traditions that don't do uh, baptism, they don't do infant baptism, they don't do confirmation or catechesis, it's very, there's still a very similar process that happens where you say a sinner's prayer or you say a particular prayer and then you're baptized and that's kind of it. You're in. You're done. Like, you, you, hooray, congratulations, you've made it. And your salvation is secure and there's, there's nothing really left for you to do unless you want to. And then you can kind of continue if you want to. But when we do that, when we do either one, we give people a false sense of security because we, we help people to think that they are walking with Jesus, that they're, that they're Christians, when in fact they're not, maybe. Maybe they are, but maybe they're not. If we bring people to a point where we say, congratulations, you've learned it all, you're in, you're secure, you're done, and we never walk them any further along, then we give people a false sense of security. Believing that they're secure in Jesus, they're secure in their salvation, and what I do now really doesn't matter all that much. But catechesis, confirmation, discipleship, as we call it, within the Christian church, is really meant, like all good education, to set us on a path of lifelong learning. But too often in the church, we reflect our educational system outside the church, where you kind of have these endpoints, right? Like, you might go to high school, and you graduate high school, and if you don't intend to go any further, your learning is done. Like, I don't need to learn anything more. I've got everything I need. I'm going to go work in my job and just live out my days for my own pleasure. Or college, you get that degree. Or post or graduate school or postgrad, whatever it is, we, we in life tend to think of these kind of terminal points in our education and development where we've kind of got it all worked out. This is why I love the trades. If you're a trades person or you've worked in the trades or you've trained in the trades, what you know is that your learning never ends. Never. You will go, uh, if, you, if you go to trade school, you're going to have to go and apprentice with a practitioner of the trade, right? I can't just go to school to become an electrician. I have to work with an electrician and shadow them and learn from them and apprentice to them. And then systems are going to constantly be changing. So I've always got to be learning different things and new methods and new ways of doing things. I am an apprentice my entire life in a trade. That's what walking with Jesus is like. We tend to treat walking with Jesus like we do our education, our schooling, our academics, when in reality, walking with Jesus is much more like an apprentice to a tradesman, where we are constantly learning, constantly growing, constantly walking. Only this is nothing new in the faith. This is nothing new in our relationship with God. This has always existed way back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is a catechism for the Israelite people. So what you got to understand is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, we believe, many of us believe, were written by a guy named Moses. And then they were later edited by other people and different details were added and stuff. But mostly we think they were written by this guy Moses. 
Moses was the leader of the Hebrew people when they were enslaved in Egypt and he led them out of Egypt. We've heard the Exodus story. And even people unfamiliar with the church and with the Bible are familiar at least a little with the Exodus story. The Israelite children coming out of Egypt. And they wander in a desert for 40 years before they enter into the land that God had promised them. And during that 40-year period, as they're wandering, they are being cemented in their identity as the people of God. That 40-year period is their catechesis. It's their educational time. It's the time that they're being formed as God's people, learning to rely on God. They're in the wilderness, for goodness sake. There's nothing there for them. They have to rely entirely on God during that time. And it's during that time that we believe Moses is writing these books, these first five books of the Bible that we call the Torah or the law, that are the catechesis for children of God. And so Moses is teaching the people their history, teaching them about their God. Because prior to this, they had been enslaved in Egypt. They had absorbed all kinds of different ideas about religion and about philosophy and about worldview and way of life. And so as slaves in Egypt, the children of Israel, they were, they were uh, just inundated with all kinds of different worldviews. So when they come out, they're really not one people. They have all kinds of different ideas and notions about God. They have all kinds of different ideas and notions because they've been surrounded by multiple worldviews, a pluralistic society. And so as they come out, Moses then, with the leaders of the people, have to teach them about God and about their history. And that's what these chapters of Genesis are. These first chapters of Genesis are an attempt to teach the people of God who their God is and who they are in relation to their God. This is the catechism for the people of God, for the Israelite people. And as they're being taught these chapters of Genesis, as they're being taught about the origins of humanity and the origins of their relationship to their God, it's being shared with them in such a way to combat all those other worldviews that they've had in, brought into their minds. Last week I talked a little bit about it, like some of the other creation narratives that were existent in the world at the time that the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, they downplay the role of humanity if you listen to some of the ancient Near Eastern creation narratives, people are nothing. They're servants of the gods. They're born out of spite and out of anger and out of pride. Sometimes they're born from the torn-off body parts of gods who got into wars with one another, and different groups of people are made from different parts of different gods that went to war. This is what the ancient world told people they were. You are just the reformed entrails of a God who couldn't make it. That, and man, now you've inundated that, right? You've, you've brought this into your mind. You've allowed this to, to come into your head, and this is what you're being told you are. And if you're a slave, that's your place, because that's how you were created, to be a slave. Right? If you are a ruler, you were created to be a ruler. If you're a pharaoh, you're God incarnate on earth. And so people are taught you are what you are from the beginning. And you cannot change what you are because it's the way the gods have created you. And it's what you must be. And into that worldview comes this narrative that says, no, 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 no. 
You are not the entrails of some God. You are not created just to be some servant and, and slave to the gods to work at their pleasure. You are not just the product of conflict between these deities that are no better than you are. You, in fact, are a special creation of the one creator God made in his image. You are made like God. Now imagine for a moment you've been told your entire life that you were made to be nothing and you are a slave because that's what the gods wanted of you and you cannot change that destiny. And then someone comes in and says, no, 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 no. Actually, the one master creator God of all the universe who is full of love and mercy created you to be just like him and gave you a mission to image him on the earth, to be his vice regent, a little version of God ruling over the earth. That's really your destiny, not slavery in Egypt. That's what this text is about. That's what these days of creation are leading up to. And so as Moses and the leaders of Israel are teaching the people their own history and about their own God, he goes through this order of creation. And in each day, he's countering some of the claims made by the Egyptian gods and by the Babylonian gods and by the other gods of the nations around the people. He's helping to form their worldview so that when they encounter these pagan nations, when they encounter other worldviews that will be competing with it, they are secure in their knowledge of who God is, how God made them, and the superiority of Yahweh, their God, over all the others. That's the purpose of these verses. That's the purpose of these narratives. So God creates light and separates the light from the darkness. God is sovereign over the day and the night. God, whose spirit hovered over the waters of chaos, calls up land from the waters and brings order to the chaos of the world. God, who, who brings order to chaos, brings up life out of the dead ground. And God does all of this with words. By the power of his speech. In fact, the only time you see God getting down and using his hands is to form people. And this is Moses, this is the leaders of Israel telling their people, look, your God is so beyond superior to all these other creator gods. They had to get down and war with one another. They had to work hard to make the earth. They had to work hard to make things have any semblance of order. And then they created this awful hierarchical structure. That's what the pagan religions are telling you. But I'm telling you, your God is so great. Your God is so good. He speaks and things happen. He doesn't have to reach down into the earth and pull up the mountains. He merely says, earth come forth, and it does, because even the creation obeys the word of God. Nothing can stand opposed to this God. Nothing can stand in opposition to Yahweh your God. So Israelites, when you're wandering in the wilderness and there are enemies that come against you, understand who your God and protector is. Know that no one can stand and, and oppose to him. No one is on a level, on a footing with your God. He will 
protect you because even the ground obeys His Word. This is who our God is. God who calls forth order. And then, where other gods, the other gods of the other nations, use their hands and use their bodies for war and use it for violence and use them for enmity and use them to battle with one another, Yahweh, the Creator God, uses His hands to make. And so we see on the last day of creation, God reached down and into the earth that He called forth with His Word, use His hands to form the man. And then use His hand to call forth the bone from the man and create the woman. We see God intimately connected to His people. Where these other, other worldviews, these other religions were telling people the gods made you out of war and conflict to be slaves to them, your God instead reached down and created humanity in the most intimate act that has ever been done in history and then breathed life, His own very spirit and life, into you. That's who you are. You are an intimate creation of the lovely, gracious Creator God who wants you because it's His breath in your lungs. It is His Spirit that even animates you. Apart from Him, you cannot live. That's who you are. And the leaders of Israel at the time that this is being being shared, being taught to them, want them to know, want them to be cemented in this knowledge before they go off into a pagan land and they hear all of these competing worldviews. God wants them to be cemented in their knowledge of Him, firm in their knowledge of Him, so that when the opposition comes, they know who they are. Because at the end of the day, you can know all kinds of things. At the end of the day, you can be filled with all kinds of knowledge. At the end of the day, you can have all kinds of book learning and knowledge. But if you don't know who you are, you'll fall for anything. And so here in Genesis, we are cementing our knowledge of who we are in relation to our God so that when the competing worldviews come in, we are firm. And we know who God has called us. We know how He has made us. We know how He has loved us. And so we see here the people of God learning who they are, being formed, having their worldview shaped. Just as Jesus has called us to be disciples and to make disciples, to have our worldview shaped by Him. Because little did they know back then, as they were wandering in the wilderness, little did the people of God know through their history as a kingdom, little did the people of God know as they rebelled and disobeyed and then came back and obeyed again and rebelled and disobeyed and went through this cycle of grace and judgment and grace and judgment. Little did they know that that very word that God had spoken at the beginning to call forth the earth from the waters would one day come as a person among them. Little could they possibly understand that that very Word of God that called forth order from chaos would one day enter into the chaos of the world, walk right into our messiness, and bring His divine order. 
They couldn't imagine that one day the very word of God by which he created all things would walk among them and teach us what it is to follow him. Teach us what it is to be his called out people, his disciples, his followers, his citizens, his brothers and sisters. And yet in John chapter 1, that's exactly what we find out. John, the youngest follower of Jesus, John who was a little kid when he started following Jesus and grew up with him, was trained and taught by Jesus. When he begins his story of Jesus' life in John chapter 1, the apostle John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and by him all things were made. Nothing was made that was not made by this Word, the Word that took shape as Jesus Christ and lived among us to show us who God is, to cement in our minds who we are in relation to our God. And the early church, the first Christians, just like those Israelites coming out of Egypt and needing to be taught, needing to be taught who they are and who their God is, these first Christians coming out of pagan cultures, coming out of all kinds of different religious backgrounds, coming out of places of all kinds of different worldviews, had to be taught. They had to be taught who Jesus was and who they were in relation to Jesus because they were in a world where if they forgot that for a moment, they would fall away. And so they needed this reinforced over and over and over again. And I love the beginning of the book of Colossians, this letter to the church in Colossae. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Colossae, and he begins by saying, I pray for you all the time. He's concerned for this young church. He's concerned for these Christians who are following Jesus, some from a Jewish background, some from all these pagan backgrounds. He's concerned for the place that they live where they're surrounded by all kinds of different worldviews and different cultures and different religious ideas. <clears throat> and he wants to cement in their minds who they are so that they will stay faithful to Jesus Christ. And here in the first chapter of his letter, Paul quotes this hymn. Now we think it's a hymn. It kind of makes sense as a hymn. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And this would be a hymn of the early church. And the purpose of the hymns of the church, the purpose of these songs that they would sing, we see the same thing happen in Philippians chapter 2, the purpose of these songs was not merely to build up emotion like we sometimes do with our singing, where our singing is about connecting us emotionally to God or, or connecting us emotionally to the Holy Spirit, which is good. I am all for it. I am all for expressive singing. I love it. I love our musical worship. But these hymns had another purpose. It was to anchor them in the knowledge of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And it was to anchor them in the knowledge of who they were in relation to Jesus. These hymns are so rich. And so here in Colossians chapter 1, as the Apostle Paul is concerned for these young Christians, concerned for this young church, in this place where they could be pulled away, where they could be lured away by the lives they've lived before, Paul quotes this hymn reminding them of who Jesus is and who they are in relation to him. And so he says in Colossians 1.15, 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And here in this hymn, we can hear echoes of that Genesis 1 narrative, of that Genesis 1 story. We can hear echoes of the creation as the hymn says that nothing was created except through Jesus for his glory and for his purpose. And then Paul goes on in this hymn to say, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, You see, the apostle knows that these young Christians, when the political pressure comes on or the social pressure comes on, it would be easy to walk away from Jesus and go back into the life that I knew before. It would be easy to be pressured out of Jesus. Just like those Israelites coming out of Egypt, it would be easy for them to go back to the cultures they had known. It would be easy for them to capitulate to the world around them and not stay faithful to their God. But in Genesis 1, we read about the superiority of their God, about the creator God, the goodness of their God, who will protect them no matter what. And here in Colossians, in this hymn, we read the same thing about Jesus. Hey, Colossian Christians, if you're afraid of the rulers or the authorities or the powers or your peers around you pressuring you out of this thing, just know that they were all made by this Jesus. He is superior to all of them. He will hold you. He will protect you. He will guide you. He will be your lighthouse. He will be your beacon. He will keep you on course. Know who you are in Jesus Christ. But not only is he king of everything, he's not just a God who's distant, who's up there on a throne where we can't touch him. He's the God who came down and walked with you. He is the one who made peace through his shed blood. Understand that the creator God of the universe, the one who formed humanity out of the dirt of the earth and breathed his breath into them, the one who knit us together in our mother's wombs, came to earth as one of us and shed his blood upon the cross so that we could have peace with him, so that we could know who we are, so we could be rooted firmly in our identity in Jesus Christ above all things. And this is why if we think of our, of our training in Christianity, our training in Jesus, if we think of our following Jesus with terminal points where we kind of reach this point and we plateau until the next thing, or we kind of reach this point and we're done until we die and go to heaven, it's a tragedy. When we walk with Jesus, as we're apprenticed to Jesus, we continue to grow in our knowledge of Him and our knowledge of who we are in Him right up until the end. When we begin to follow Jesus, we must understand that is truly a beginning. It is not an end point. 
There's no point in the Christian life at which we reach some master sage status where we, we know it all and we don't need to do anything more. There's no more learning to be done. When we follow Jesus, we are beginning a lifelong process of being conformed to His image. That is, becoming like Jesus in every way. And that process continues right up until the day we meet Him face to face. It never ends. And this is why it is so crucial, so essential that we spend time together. This is why it's so essential that we read God's Word and we are saturated in it and soaked in it and rooted in it. This is why it is so essential that we are regularly in prayer, individually and together. This is why it is absolutely essential that we have older, more mature followers of Jesus in our lives to walk with us and to lead us to become more like him. This is why it's also essential we have someone else that we're walking with, that we're teaching, and we're leading, and we're helping to become more like Jesus, because it won't happen by ourselves. It won't happen alone. It happens in community as we walk together, because Jesus came to save a people for himself, a kingdom and a family for himself. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect gathering together. Be together. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Walk together toward Jesus. Let some of you be examples to others as you walk into maturity with Jesus. Let you be able to say, like the Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's walk together toward Jesus. The Christian life is one long catechesis. We call it discipleship. We are learning to be disciples and apprentices of Jesus, to do everything that he does. And that will involve intellectual learning. That'll involve studying the Bible and studying Scripture and studying what the saints that have gone before us have said. It'll mean learning and building up our mind, and it'll mean following in footsteps, doing the things that the saints do, doing the things that we saw Jesus doing in his life, loving the poor, loving our neighbor, standing for justice, pursuing righteousness individually and collectively, caring for those around us, sharing the gospel of Jesus with our words and with our deeds. Walking with Jesus is not some terminal thing where we can coast until we die and go to heaven. We don't get a ticket to heaven. We're becoming like Jesus. So my highest aim as a follower of Jesus, and I hope yours too, is to be conformed to his image, to become like Jesus in absolutely every way, to love like he loves, to do as he has done, to speak truth and to wrap our arms around one another, to point to our God and Father through the power of his Holy Spirit living within us, to pursue him with everything we've got, to live in perpetual catechesis, being conformed to the image of Jesus. Just as the Israelites were as they were wandering the desert, and just as Jesus has called us to in his great commission when he said, go and make disciples, which means go and be a disciple who makes disciples, teaching them to obey me in everything. 
empowered by the Holy Spirit as we go. And so let us commit ourselves now to training in Christianity, to apprenticeship to Jesus as a community, as a family together, spurring one another on to love and good deeds as we glorify our Father in heaven and see His kingdom come on earth around us. Let's pray. God, we thank You. We thank You for Your church. God, as messed up as Your church can be, and as hard as this family can be to be a part of sometimes, and as much as we fail and fall short, I thank You for calling out the church of Jesus Christ to represent You on the earth And I pray, Lord, that we here in this family, in this community, would be faithful representatives of Jesus in our communities, in our personal relationships, in our corporate relationships, as we go out and we love on our communities just as you have loved, as we speak the good news of Jesus just as you taught us to, as we teach the world to obey our King Jesus, to bow our knees in obedience to you, Lord, and as we are cemented in our identity as people who are bought by the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ and empowered by God's very Holy Spirit, I pray that we would own that deep within, that we would know securely who we are in Christ so that we can go out, Lord, and see your kingdom come in our world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.